everyone, it's Stephen Caldwell here again, and it's my absolute privilege to invite on a very good friend of mine, a, a guy who I played with at Newcastle United and who represented Aberdeen, Newcastle United, Watford, Hibernian, amongst others, and Scotland also, uh, Stephen Glass, now the uh, the head coach of Atlanta United too. Glassy, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to have you here on Tactical Talks, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of your stories about your influences in the game and indeed how you are influencing the, the youth of Atlanta now. No problem. Thanks for having me on, Stevie. It's great to see you. I'm glad you're well and I'm looking forward to the chat as well. Thanks, mate. Yeah, so I think we'll get right into it and I think we'll talk about, you know, your your first professional club, Aberdeen, which is, is a pretty prestigious club in, in Scottish football sense for me, Glassy. I think it's a club that I've always had a great tradition of, of bringing through some top-class youngsters. I've always did things right. It was a, a club I actually spent a week at myself. I was considering maybe signing with Aberdeen at one point in my youth career. And, and I think that history and that kind of uh, emphasis on, on trying to bring through players from the youth is really important in that football club. So, you know, give us some stories about your first experience there and, and what it was like being a, being a, a youth player at Aberdeen FC. Right, interesting what you said actually about you visited there for a week. I'm sure it was during one of the school holidays. Yeah. Uh, that was that was one of the first things that I did as a young player. So anywhere, I think probably around 12 or so. Uh, from 12 to 16, you went up there every week on a school holiday. Uh, you got bussed up and you spent time in, in a bed and breakfast with a lady who made your breakfast and then you went to the club for the day and you spent the day and lived like a pro. So it, w- it was good. A little, uh, a bit of a grounding, uh, seeing what it was like to be a pro even at that young age. And it was interesting at that time how much you start looking back and seeing that things were influencing how you do things later in your career. Uh, Little little things, Alex Smith, who you know very well as well, I know, uh, he was a manager of the club at the time and he's talking to us as 12-year-old boys asking how how your mum and dad, Ruby and Jim's getting on, that sort of thing. How's your brother going? And he knows everything about you. And it's not an act. It's something that he's just a proper top guy and he knows what he's doing. And uh, little bits like that kind of stick with you. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating thing about guys like Alex Smith, Tommy Craig, who we'll probably get to in a little bit, um, Alex Ferguson. Um, these kind of, I think you used to call them the SFA Mafia at one point or another, <laughs> but, but they came through at the same time, didn't they? And, and that personal man management approach was really important to these guys, wasn't it? They were, they were so special at, at making you feel great, making your, your, your dad, your family feel great. And just having a keen interest in how you were growing up as a as a teenager and how you're progressing in your football, it was it was a special gift that they had, wasn't it? Yeah, they definitely did. And I and I think uh, I think people's families, like you say, they know it as well. So you're a young kid, you think everything's great, every club you go to, but when you come away from that one, that's the best one. But so I was at Dundee, Dundee United training with the Celtic, like locally in Dundee. Uh, and every night you come away from it, that was the best session. This is the best club, whichever one it was. Yeah. Uh, except for Dundee for me, because I was a big United fan. And I didn't enjoy the Dundee stuff. Yeah. But uh, but the Aberdeen stuff was probably the biggest influence. And my dad really knew what Aberdeen offered for young players, I think, and kind of guided me in that direction. Uh, it wasn't a force by any means, but it was more of you're probably better away from home and focusing on football, because I think he knows the pitfalls for young guys. Yeah. Uh, so that that was good. Uh, just coming through there, knowing the players that had made it through already, knowing there was a pathway if you were good enough and if you worked hard enough and got fortunate enough, which is a big part. 
of becoming a footballer as well. You could be you'd be a very good player and not get the break that you need to make it. Uh, and I think a lot of young players don't maybe realise that too. Uh, so if you, we kind of say to them that there's a guarantee if you don't work hard enough, you won't make it. But if you are good enough, you might still not make it. It's not, it's not as black and white and straightforward as you think to, be a, to become a professional footballer. So do you think it's just about timing and, and kind of grabbing that opportunity? Because if you're working hard and you've got a bit of talent, the opportunity... You will get one or two opportunities, eh? Do you think that's about luck or do you think that's just uh, grabbing, seizing the opportunity? There's a fortune to get an opportunity in the first place, I think. Uh, because I think there's probably been, I couldn't name any off the top of my head, but there's probably a lot of players who were good enough and didn't have a manager that would put them in a team. So yeah. I think that that's a fortune to be at a club with a manager at that time when you're ready so the sort of the perfect storm of a young footballer being ready at the right time, the manager gave him an opportunity at the right time and then taking it. It's it's not that simple. So I think that's why there's limited numbers make it through. And I think it's why every kid that gets in the first team doesn't last because it's not as easy as people think. Uh, but there's you don't want to put people off their dreams and their hopes. And I do think that you can force your way as well through dedication and hard work which is really important that we try to instill in the boys as well because probably a fairly talented player myself, fairly, but a lot of better players than me. But I was very dedicated and I wanted to be a footballer and I did everything and live my life so that I could be one. And so was that a philosophy of Aberdeen Football Club that they would employ guys like Alex Smith who they understood that, that you know the whole aim was to try and develop and create these these youth team players that were capable of stepping in that first team and then obviously promoting them at the right time. Would you feel that that was an overall strategy of the club or, or was that more just Alex's personal uh, way of doing it? I think it probably went as far back as Alex Ferguson's time at the yeah. club with, with the young guys that he put in the team and even the age of the players at Gothenburg that was winning European Cup Winners' Cup. I think it goes as far back as that. Uh, but the club, to me, the club is built on putting young players in a team and either, well, not either, having them produce for the team and then they either stay at that point or they get sold and make money and it gets produced and it becomes a cycle. So uh, they're saving money or making money in effect. But yeah. And I think uh, the amount of players that have come through that club and become good managers and coaches is incredible. And I think it all started from Sir Alex's time at the club. Uh, the influence on there the standards that were set, the, the expectation on players and what it means to play for the club. And I think uh, it looks like everything they're doing with the community just now, it's coming back. And uh, hopefully Derek can instill that and keep that going and make it better than it is at the moment. And I'm sure he can. Yeah, I love how you said standards set there because I want to touch on that point. And, you know, this is a tactical talk. I've done a few of these with different different guys, different influences. But, you know, everyone thinks of tactics as being a style of play, a way of playing, a formation. But to me, tactics is, is everything. And, and, and part of that is standards and what's expected of you. You've mentioned hard work already. And you've talked about the, the philosophy at Aberdeen. Growing up, coming through a youth team there, was the, the emphasis on the way you handled yourself, how you worked, and the standards that you were trying to... Um, emulate I guess from first team players or was it more about you know 
four four two, get it wide, get it into channels, get you know whatever the tactics were. You know, explain yeah. that to us because I think people always think of tactics as as a style of play rather than just a, an overall philosophy and how you go about your business. Yeah, I talked to this the other day. I think with someone else, and it's like some of the stuff as a young player that tactically you get put into, you don't even realise it's getting put into you. Uh, because at that time it really was four four two a lot of the time, and uh, I spoke about the crossing and finishing aspect because I, I was good at that when I was younger because I could run and I could deliver a ball. So it was the crossing and finishing exercise. I think were tailored towards probably myself and a lot of the other young players that were forward players that came through. And I think a lot of the boys that came through at that time were under the tutelage of people like Jockey Scott, Drew Jarvie. Alex Smith himself, uh, Neil Cooper was a centre half, so when I went in full time, I was under him as well. But a lot of forward type players doing the coaching and teaching you the movement, teaching you the timing of runs, the pace of runs. And that's the tactics that you take into a game, and you didn't even really realise you're doing tactical work and it's just a crossing and finishing exercise. But I'm realising the more I see, there's not just any exercise, there's always some sort of idea behind it, even if it's planting seeds in players' minds that this is what you should be thinking about at this time in a game. So you're doing tactical work in the most basic of exercise. So I think that's an importance. Uh, the people that were coaching at that time, Jockey, Drew, they were coming when we were still 12 and in the Dundee hub, not in those school holiday weeks. They would drive to Dundee on a night, so 60 miles for people that don't know, yeah. on a night, weeknight, to come and coach 12 to 16 year old Dundee lads that have got a hope and a dream to play for Aberdeen and that's the sort of dedication that they were putting into the young players that goes unnoticed and I'm not sure at any club that happens anymore uh, the, the dedication from guys at the very top but, and I think it's much difficult now to do it but I don't think it happens anymore It's an incredibly unselfish thing to do isn't it and it's a, it's a commitment without any ego, you know, and I, I think that when we, we're obviously both Scottish, we're, we're close in age, I think you're four years older than me, so I'm a bit younger, but we, just we are, as we talk, I didn't even know you had worked with Jockey Scott, and I worked with Jockey at Sunderland, and yeah. um, and the detail and the expertise that Jockey would put into a, a, a forwards session, to me he was one of the first specialist coaches that I ever worked with. And I we never really realised it at the time because he was he was not considered a specialist coach. He, he took a yeah. team and he did more than than just striker work, of course. But his detail to striker work was second to none, wasn't it? And the timing of the run, the movement, the little nuances that that make you a, a top striker or a, a good winger or a, a, a excellent attacking player was exceptional for Jockey. And, and he had sessions yeah. galore, didn't he? He could, he could put 10, 12, 15 of these on. There were always little variations, little differences. Exactly. And then when they're, they're doing partnership work even, because it was four four two at the time, it would be a paired striker, a twin striker, whatever you want to call it. And then they're saying to the wide player, fizz it in here, and it's Jockey and Drew doing the work. <laughs> and like, these boys could still play. And yeah. I don't know what age they were at the time. You think they're, you think they're 50, 60, they're probably 35, 40, because you're young. <laughs> But you're thinking these these guys are coming and oh, they could move like that and they could still hit it like that. But they show you something, and I think that's where sometimes being an ex-player can help. It doesn't. It's not the be-all and end-all, but it can help you coaching because you can show them something, and especially in young players that maybe something they've never thought about hitting a ball that way or whipping it in like that or feeling it in in a different way. 
So seeing those people come and do that sort of thing was incredible. And uh, I think a lot of people at Aberdeen benefited from it massively. Yeah, so you, you were a top-class left winger and, and your your idea was, I mean, you were one of the best at kind of crossing the ball on the run, taking it down the line, getting getting good crosses in. Is that what your kind of early influence was there? What was your, uh, your job uh, description to just kind of get up and down that flank? Were you asked to come inside? How intricate was the details that you were given when you first broke into the first team? Uh, when I first broke into the first team, I'd been playing. It was strange because the reserves were kind of, on and off being like not serious but like a dedicated reserve team so we got farmed out to the juniors so in, Dun- in Aberdeen so I was playing as a centre forward because I could score goals and I could run uh, when I was playing for the reserve team I was either left back left midfield or striker and I didn't care it was wherever you play you get a game I'm playing in the reserves you're playing in stadiums things like that so it was like oh this is great uh, against men so, 16-year-old playing again, actually played against Tony Mowbray in the reserve game. So, right. I spoke about that when I was at Hibs as well, yeah. so it was funny. But, uh, so, when I break into the first team, my first game was at left-back. And I, play, I came on as a sub, as a striker, but whatever, that's a throwaway. But when you come on properly for longer games, left-back was the first position I was playing. Again, fortunate I could play a number of positions. Fortunate the left-back got injured or suspended, I can't remember at the time, it was called Woodthorpe. So the manager trusted me to put me in because he'd seen what I could do. He'd seen the standards and he knew what I was capable of. He knew what I probably wasn't capable of as well on the negative side, but trusted enough that I could give something to the team. So at that time, very often the message for Willie Miller walking out the door to step on the pitch was going to enjoy it because I think as I moved further forward, I think he knew I had the pace and a wee bit of freedom because you're naive when you break into a team that I could affect games. So he was very much, it was all like the usual, we've been in a dressing room where it's, we, we weren't great when I broke into the team. That's another reason I probably got a chance. We were fighting for our lives and I get into a team and everything's like really hectic, really frantic. And he's saying to me as I walk out the door, just go and enjoy it. And it's like, all right, just go and play a game in front of a big crowd. And it's like, this is the business. It's like, this is what you wanted to do since you started kicking it and now you get the opportunity to do it so uh, that was really it tactically 4-4-2 at that time uh, left wing in the main get crosses into Shearer, Dodgy, Mike Newell whoever make the right movements for the left back or the wide players as they come across or the strikers whipping it wide no really so much like you asked tucking in and being a narrow winger uh, that became I, I was doing that still a wee bit when I was older because I couldn't do the running anymore so yeah. much or so often. Movement was still maybe clever enough, but do it all game, do it like 20 times in behind and only get it once. You get older and you're like, now nah, just <laughs> nick inside. So, <laughs> uh, but young, I always get the crosses and run forward and be as dangerous as possible. But I, I, some of the strikers you mentioned there, guys to cross it into, Billy Dodds, Mike Newell, Duncan Shearer, does they get a lot better than that? They guys love crosses into the box. And I'll bet they told you when you messed around out in the wide areas and you didn't get it in because they, they needed that early cross. They thrived on that, didn't they? Well, Big Dung lived off it. Yeah, Dodgy was maybe a wee bit more, I don't want to say clever because it's different, but Dodgy was a clever footballer. He'd come off and he'd play at the right time. He'd arrive in the box at the right time. He'd make great runs. So you could, you could pick your head up and you could see where the space was and you knew that's where Bill's going to be. So drop it in there and he's going to arrive there at the right time. And in the main, if you've got good players linking up, you, 
you you know where they should be. Uh, so you so you learn like that. And uh, actually, the cup final we played for Aberdeen, we're walking out at half time, and Big Duncan says to me, "Just get it in early." Exactly what you just said. Yeah. So I think it we were one 0 up in the first half. I think I can't remember. I mean, yeah, I think we were. It was one two nothing. So it was one nothing at half time. We're walking out at half time, and he said to me, "Just get it in early. I'll get. I'll be there." And about I don't know five minutes into the second half, I managed to get a little bit free, stick one in the box, and the big man's like <laughs> putting everything in the net, and you knew he would as well. So that's the sort of thing that that makes you a good player though as well, because like, if you cross it in there and there's the two strikers have run to the front post and you've put what good one at the back post and you're, you're, you know someone should be there. Yeah. But there's a full stadium thinking that's a terrible cross, look where the strikers are. So guys like that help you become and look like a good player, which yeah, again, yeah. good fortune and the teammates. Yeah, good fortune, but the, the, the experience of playing with a guy like that just takes your game on that, that level of 10, doesn't it? I mean, you, you always think, People kind of assume that it's the the manager, the head coach, some assistant coaches, but it's sometimes the players that coach yeah. you when you're that age as well, don't they? They're, they're the ones that teach you the kind of moments and the, the the little things that make you a true professional after coming through youth team yeah. and football. Yeah, to me, senior players are a massive influence that get underestimated because... I know the senior players that were at Aberdeen, even when I was in the youth team, it was Jim Bett, it was McLeish, it was... Stuart McKimmy, it was Paul Kane, Brian Grant, like top, top footballers yeah. that were a little bit older, but they knew the score, they knew how you should act, they knew how to push you, they knew when to treat you right. Unbelievable grounding for a young player. And then there's another like age group like Stevie Wright, Bowie, Ian Jess, slightly younger lads that have been through what you've been through as well. So the the position I landed in at Aberdeen with that dressing room of first team players was ridiculous so you were able to go in there if you can't learn there you shouldn't be a footballer so very fortunate with opportunities very fortunate with them as people uh, and I had a great grounding in the game played for a lot of managers at Aberdeen as well which was good it was a consequence of the club no then as well as it should have Yeah. but then played played under I think it was Willie first in the first team then Roy Keith Birkinshaw for a spell, Paul Hegarty yep. for a spell, Alex Miller for a spell. Right. Like, unbelievable amount of managers that had great experience in the game. Yeah, some so, great names yeah. as well uh, in the Scottish game. Yeah, and you leave there, you go so from 16 to 22, and you've played for a lot of managers. Uh, so it can, it can only help you. And I think the grounding that I got from Aberdeen, and like I say, the standards that get instilled in you, it sets you up for a career. So I was very fortunate where I came through it. Yeah, I can't I can't leave Aberdeen but talk about that League Cup that you mentioned where you were man of the match. You were absolutely brilliant. I can remember watching as a, a 15-year-old in Stirling, Scotland and, and seeing you rip it up. I don't know what age you were. What were you, 20, 20, 19, 20? Something like that. 19, 19. I just turned 19. Yeah. 19, you know, what an inspiration you then were for, for me and the rest of Scotland seeing you Within reach, you know, I was, what, 15, you're 19, I'm going, well, I know I wasn't going to do it in the left wing, but I'm thinking, I can do that, maybe I can get yeah. to that level. So, uh, big times there, some some great names you've mentioned there, names that I've actually had the pleasure, Ian Jess, I was at Bradford with Jesse, and great guy, great influence, a brilliant football player as well. So, um, yeah. it, it, was, it was great, great times, I'm sure, but you were on a the English Premier League after that and, and this yeah. is where I came together at Newcastle United and um, I mean 
was it only Newcastle or was there other teams in the equation there? And what made you decide Newcastle? And what were you expecting to come into in, in a kind of team environment? Were you, were you expecting a level to be up a little bit in terms of competition or, or squad or whatever it may be? Or were you just coming there to try and show your worth like you had done at Aberdeen? It probably just going in to try and show my worth. Uh, I had I had ambitions to go and play in England. So the last year of my contract at Aberdeen, uh, I'd heard whispers. It was different back then as well. It's like newspapers or maybe a senior player knows a manager and a player in England that knows you or met him. So heard whispers that people were interested in things like that, but nothing concrete. Never heard personally anything. Uh, but I wanted to see if I was good enough to go and play in England. Uh, that's what that's what I want to do, and I thought the time was right. I thought I thought I'd done a bit in Scotland, played something like. By the time I got to the end of my time at Aberdeen, I think I played like 130 games or something. At 22 year old, just on 22, so yeah. it was a decent return. Uh, I felt like I'd get some money in for the club. I felt like I could go and try my luck, and uh, Kenny Daglish got in touch. So, for everybody that's not Scottish that's watching it is basically like the King of Scotland calling you and saying, do you want to come and play for me? So, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. So, aye, so any, anybody that's from Scotland, if he phones you to come and play for his team, you, you go. And that's well, it. How charismatic was he as well? You know, he, he talked to you again, that old SFA Mafia. He, he, he knew everything about you. He'd seen your last 20 games. He was... He was so in tune with who you were as a person, as a player. He just yeah. made you feel a million dollars, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. Even when I actually went to sign for him, I signed a pre-contract. It was one of the first Bosman ones from internationally, I suppose, Scotland to England. And, uh, well, they were kind of haggling about money and all the stuff that was out of my remit. So it was fine. I was doing what I was legally allowed to do and I was happy and I knew the club were going to get money. But So I knew it was all kind of tied up. And he was telling me, they, they could have sold you when I asked before. And I know he was at Blackburn before, and yeah. I think they put some money down, but the club didn't want to, uh, which I never heard about, that sort of thing. So yeah. then you start realising the business of football a little bit as well. Like, you might have fancied that move. If Kenny phoned you to go and play for Blackburn, I'd have probably done it if the club wanted me to go and speak to them. But I didn't, never got that opportunity. So when it came along and he was saying there was no... There was no, no feeling of guilt. There was no none of that because I knew that I'd given a really good return to Aberdeen. Uh, no many players give a trophy to them as well. Yeah. I gave a trophy. It wasn't me, but yeah. put a, help put a trophy in the cabinet. So I'm one of the few that have managed to do that over recent years. So I knew that I'd given a little bit back. And they'd give me a lot, but I'd given a little bit back as well. Yeah. Uh, so I was ready. Uh, there was I, I could have went to another Scottish club, but I didn't want to. Yeah. Uh, one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. So I had that opportunity at the last minute, but I wasn't swayed. I knew that I wanted to go and speak to Kenny Daglish and Newcastle and see what happened. And uh, I think I was proved right how it went. I enjoyed my time there. Uh, a funny story about Ian, what you're saying as well, yeah. uh, that you knew Ian, Jess, yeah. so well. The day we were going to play Celtic away, and after that I was going to drive down with my agent, Struan Marshall, to, yeah. to Newcastle. Uh, so stay at Struans in Glasgow that night, drive to Newcastle. And I'm pretty private. I didn't tell anybody I'm even speaking to Newcastle at that time. Even Ian, whose agent was Struan as well. That's right. how I got into was Struan. And uh, so he picked me up to go to the stadium to get on the bus. And uh, we're, we're just going to play Celtic. And I get in the car and he's like, that's a big bag. <laughs> <laughs> 
I says, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, gammon, I don't win. He's like, it's bigger than that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I still told you. Yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, he told me last week. <laughs> so, but I don't, honestly, I keep my business to myself and it's yeah. not, it's probably, you're probably the same. But So Ian's kind of funny, but he was able to keep it under his hat. So he's looking after me even at that yeah. time as well. So he's not putting it to the other lads, telling them this is happening. And in this day and age, I don't think that sort of stuff would get kept under wraps. Yeah, it's brilliant. What a great story. He was some man. He was a bit of a joker, Jesse, wasn't he? He was, he was great with me at Bradford. I was only there two months with him, but Gary Locke, Ian Jess, these kind of guys, Ashley Ward, just, again, just great pros. And I was only nineteen twenty at that time, so still very much learning the game and, and getting that basic grounding that you need for people. Like yeah. That. It's, it's sensational. Played with uh, Locke in the 21s as well. Oh, Sorry, interrupting you. Locke's great, isn't he? He's just... What you see is what you get with Lockie. Doesn't Great lad, yeah. Brilliant. Um, the tactics in, in England to Scotland, what was what was the big difference there? Did you did you notice it or did it take some time? Like was, was the football, I guess, more technical, slower, or or what was it like? Yeah, I think it was it was quicker, it was more physical, but in a different way. Right. Uh, I think the Scottish game's a bit uh bang bang, if you like, yeah. this Physical, very physical. The boys were, I'd say in England, the boys were more physically capable, but mm. in Scotland, the game was more physical, if that makes sense. It yeah. does to you. But yeah. So that that was the biggest difference. I think you couldn't rely on being just quicker than the fullback. So I had to, I had to get even more clever in a way, I think, to beat fullbacks and right. get your cross off at the right time or go past somebody and not have the centre-half covering, uh, make your movement really at the right time. Uh, but more often than not, the midfielders would be passing it. If you made the right run, the ball came. Yeah. It's not, you didn't make many runs and you're thinking you should have passed me that there. It's, you make the right movement, the ball's coming. Probably more often at first, it would be a case of a midfielder saying to you, you should have ran earlier there and I'd have played you instead. So I'm learning, like, yeah. I'm not quite as good as I think here. So that really pushed me. Uh, and one of my first pre-season games where in terms of the movement, and it's not tactics, but it's like movement, you know, striker movement, when they yeah. come, everybody tell you, you come short, you're going to spin in behind or go long and pull off. To me, up the road, it happened, kind of happened. Yeah. And I remember the first time, I think it was the first time I played for Newcastle on a friendly at Middlesbrough. It was either the first game or the first one back in the country after pre-season. And Shearers came short, maybe 10 yards into their half as we're attacking. And came off really quick in the feet. So I've put my head down, passed it, and it's rolling right to the centre half's feet. Yeah. <laughs> because he's in. Right. And and if I just nicked it in behind, it's the easiest pass on the planet. Yeah. But he's in and it's a goal. I nearly took my head off. <laughs> and I'm like, right, okay. That's the stance. So if you come short, you are going in there. And yeah. I started to get up to speed quick. If he comes here, he's going there, and you had to learn you got to learn the top man's movement because if you want yeah. to play in a good team, you've got to learn the top man's movements so that you can feed him. Yeah. And if you, can't, if you can't feed the top guy, you're not playing. So, learned quick uh, and ended up ended up playing a decent number of games. Doing all right there as well at times. Probably could have done better if I didn't get injured, but the learning curve, I think, was steep. Yeah. Uh, and it came from... Not strictly tactics, I think it came from the quality of the opponents and the quality of the new teammates that I had. Yeah, I think that 
I mean, you talk about how steep your learning curve was. You're, you're 22, you've got 130 appearances, and you still find it steep, you know? And, and so, like, it kind of shows you the, the difficulties of getting to that level. You know, it's, it's, it's such a high level, it's such a high bar, and, and there's, there's nowhere to hide, is there? Like, these guys, like no. Sheba and Rob Lee and Shea Given, Warren Barton, that were in our changing room. They, they're a great help. They're great professionals, but there's no time to take Stephen Glass or Stephen Caldwell under their wing and, and allow no. them six months to develop. Eh? It's like, right, and this is what I expect. You better live yeah. up to it or Aye. you're going to hear it from me, yeah? I think they take you under the wing in a different way as well because they, they can almost teach you the expectations. Uh, yeah. So at the right time. Uh, and it's never, to me, it was never done in front of a crowd or to be the big man or anything like that. It was always at the right time. Like There's a way of telling someone yeah. and there's a time to tell someone. Uh, but those players were top, top professionals, like you've yeah. said. Incredible footballers and great professionals and good guys. Uh, so I think the other side of it as well that, I think sometimes these they'll give a little bit more time to young guys, like you're saying, when they see that you are, you hold yourself to standards, that you push yourself, that you're professional. You don't arrive at a club and it's like I play for Newcastle now. I'm Jack the Lad and yeah. I'm as good. I'm as good as you. I'm I'm hoping to get close to how good you guys are, and that's. I think you go in with humility and you've got a chance. Yeah. If you if you go in thinking you're the big lad. They're, they're waiting to knock you down. You've seen it a hundred times. Yeah, they'll find you out and they'll make a point. They'll almost look for it to yeah. knock you down. And I don't think a lot of young players realise that these days either because they can get fed into, like, everybody wants them to do it and it's going to happen and everybody will look after you. And then the, the harsh reality and brutality of being a professional at the top flight hits and nobody feels sorry for you. Yeah. So... Uh, but I'm, I, I loved it. I loved it the months. Yeah. And and Shearer is special, wasn't he? I mean, you played with some great strikers. We mentioned three of them there at Aberdeen. but And, and then even moving forward. But Shearer was, was someone else, wasn't he? And, and what was that about him that that made him so special? I know it's. I asked Sean Maloney this question about Henrik Larson. He's like, oh, I can't answer you that. It would take me like 20 minutes. I get it. He had more than one thing. But what was a couple of things that were like so exceptional about Shearer? I can't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> <You're Yeah. watching. laughs> nah, he's uh, you know what he's he's got so much brilliance about everything that he did. Yeah. But the basic things he was fantastic at. And if he got half a chance, he is smashing it in the net. He buried and that. I don't I don't know hard to play against for centre halves. Ramon Vega told me he turned and punched him right in the face like during the game for nothing, just because he was close to him. I've never seen that side of it, but it's like yeah. he's capable of. He's a winner, so hard to play against. Fantastic at the basics. Half a chance as a goal. I don't know what else you want in the centre forward. Yeah, it's an unbelievable striker. Uh, work hard for his team, like proper work for his team as well. Not show work. Yeah, work for his team. Work the channels can cross it. Probably second best crosser in this conversation. <laughs> 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 nah, he could. If he, if he goes wide, the centre forwards know it's coming in. Yeah, yeah. So unbelievable. He probably could have been a winger if he wanted to be. Yeah. So, but I think he got more joy at sticking in the net, which I can understand. So. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but, but work rate, 
then the basics, simple things to an unbelievable level, being hard to play against. And like I said, one chance a game, which I try to say when I'm coaching the strikers just now, if you got one chance in the stadium in front of 70,000, are you going to stick it in the net? Yeah. It's like, oh, I missed that one. It's like, that's your one chance. That's your yes. done. Name yeah. But it's, that's, that's the difference. One chance is a goal. You wait 90 minutes for it, you get one chance, it's a goal. Yeah. Uh, going through on the goalkeeper, turn around to go back because you know he's going to score. That's <laughs> it's done, isn't it? It's done. Yeah, it's yeah. not like, oh, I hope Alan scores this one. It's like, there's a goal. Yeah. Yeah. The and it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a few, a few bits in there. There's nothing specific, but there's a lot of things that, as a centre forward, he's unbelievable at. I, I, the, the big thing for me with Shearer was his mental strength and his, um, especially later on in his career where he was losing a bit of that pace and, and maybe that physical prowess, the way that he understood that he was such a accomplished finisher, such a, you know, a consistent finisher that chance would come and he put it in the back of the net. I, I thought that was, you know, the, the most admirable thing about him. And, and I played against him as well in that kind of form, Glassy. And I watched him, you know, play for us, Castle like that. But just, he always knew he was going to put it in the back of the net when his chance came. And it allowed him this, this calm assurance at whatever minute of the game it was, didn't it? Yeah, I think that's probably why later in his career, he maybe didn't venture so far from the middle of the pitch and high up the pitch because he knew percentages are, that's where it's coming. Uh, I, I think in the main, if you were wide and going to cross it, you knew he liked to almost give the defender a nudge and pull to the back post. So you kind of knew where he was going to be. Yeah. And you as a centre-half playing against him, I don't know if you lost any goals against him or no, but uh, you probably knew where he was going to be as well. But yeah. you can't go and stand against him. It's not how it works. You, could probably, you probably know what his movement might be, but he's clever enough. He's He's... In the box, he's the cleverest there was. So it's no, it's something you can learn from both you as a centre half and me as a winger that, that that's what a centre forward should be like. Uh, and for you, if you could handle him, you're doing all right. And then the next week, you'd fancy yourself like, what's this centre forward going to do when I can handle Alan? Do you know? So yeah, it wasn't even the the handling him was the, the hard part. It was the the concentration needed to make sure that you were you were near him at all times, especially in the 18-yard box, because if, if you had lost him for that split second, it was in the back of the net, you know? So so the guys that I played against, I played against a lot of players, no disrespect to Alan, but, you know, gave you a much harder time over 90 minutes. But did they score a goal or did they, they come away with a match ball or, you know, no, but, but Alan yeah. did more often than not. And I think most centre-halves would tell that same story. It, it wasn't that, I know he was quicker and and a, a, a bit more, um, I guess, sort of direct in his, his kind of younger career before he, he had the ankle injury. I, I heard him speak recently and he talked about his ankle injury where he kind of felt like he lost a bit of his pace. But when I played against him, there wasn't such a thing as pace and he wasn't even that strong, but he buried, he buried, he'd score and, and, he, and he'd come away the hero. And he did yeah. it so many times in our Newcastle team, didn't he? Where Bellamy, yeah. it was a great partnership. Bellamy did a lot of work, a lot of great work. But Shearer was, was kind of always a hero. He was always the one that, that got in the score sheet. Oh, exactly. And even like as a defender or a forward player, so a forward player in his team does nothing better because you know if you can make a chance, he's going to score. Yeah. And a, def- a defender in his team or against us or in his team, 
you know if he gets half a sniff, if you can keep at zero, you've got a chance. But playing against him, there's nothing worse than it drops and he smashes it in the net and you knew, I knew he was going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, if you know, you stop him, but it's still you can't. It's you just, can. it's a knack. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one amazing striker the next you, you moved on to Watford you signed by the incredible Gianluca Viali uh, a guy that we all watched uh, play for Sampdoria in Italy through the years just amazing striker but now he was your manager at, at Watford what was his kind of concepts on the game and again how different was that move to the way that you were asked to play the style of football that Watford were, uh, were, were using at that time they they were still four four two as well. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, so it was very it was very Italian. The the fitness aspect was there, right. and it was the it was more physically demanding than anything I'd seen to that point in terms of like the focus and the like the, the heart rate monitors, the watches. Uh, Ray Wilkins was the coach, so he would sing the praises of the Italian way as well, which probably went a long way with the lads. So uh, if somebody like Ray Wilkins is telling you, listen these guys know what they're doing, you yeah. listen to that. So you crack on and you get the work done. So I felt like physically, I looked after myself that summer when I went there because I didn't know where I was going. So I was speaking to the manager on and off and then I decided like, I'm going to go for this. Uh, loved it. The way that he was, he was very focused on attacking. He was he was, he was, was more tactical in the size of saying, it was my first introduction to if someone's running through, it's all right to foul them, that sort of thing. Yeah. You don't really have to tell Scottish boys that anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, aye, so that was like more of a, not a tactic, because that's wrong to say that about yeah. a manager, but it was like, if he's going through there, you probably want to pull him back or yeah. take a yeah. yellow. Yeah. Some, tactical some, foul. That's yeah, tactical. Foul. I won't use the C <laughs> word you just used. But it's, uh, but he's, uh, yeah, he, he was like that. He was focused. He was very organised. Uh I think he came into a team that was kind of different, no different levels. I think there was, there was a past and a what the manager hoped was going to be the future, and it never quite gelled for whatever reason. A lot of good players were still there, a lot of good players came in, and I think it should have been better than it was. Right. Uh, but not through unprofessionalism on anyone's part, not through poor management. I just think it didn't gel. And I couldn't put my finger on the reason, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's disappointing, but um, a great experience, I'm sure, all the same. And then back to Hibs and working under, again, some, some great people there. Some of the, the, um, the I guess, the brightest young coaches of the time. And I want to focus on one that, that's probably came up in some of these chats with, with other people in the past, but Tony Mowbray, who was, he was an exceptional coach, wasn't he? And, and this, to me, is... Uh, a guy who was completely focused on playing the game in the right way. Tactics were a big part of that, playing it out for the back. Probably at a time where it was not as fashionable as what you would say it is now. Uh, am I right in saying that? A hundred percent. Quickly back to Watford, because I know you can right. this as well. But uh, I was fortunate there as well when Luca Vialli left, got sacked. I can't actually remember if it was a sacking or a leaving, whichever. Right. Ray Lewington took over. Oh, Ray's a great coach, yeah. So unbelievable coach again. So I'm landed on my feet all over the place. So even further quickly, Newcastle, Kenny leaves. Ruth Hulett comes in, leaves. Bobby yeah. Robson comes in. Yeah. Unbelievable. Then you go to Viali, good. 
and then Ray Lewington, who's an unbelievable coach, takes over. So again, so not a massive managers going on a tactical talk. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but but Tony was incredible. You're right. Uh, he was to me he was a breath of fresh air. He was what the club needed at that point in time. Uh, there was a crop of young players that were that Bobby had given Bobby Williamson had given who signed me at Hibs had given me a little bit. Sorry, had given them their first team debuts and things like that. A few of them, and they were ready. <coughs> they were ready for something different. I think. And Tony came in, and his mindset was. He'd obviously come through at Ipswich playing there when they were a proper good footballing team, and that's yeah. where he was coming from. And I remember a lot of the lads not really sure the assistant or like the reserve coach at Ipswich is coming to be the manager. And you know, Hibs get a lot of big names. Yeah. Tony's, Tony's a big name now, but at that point, yeah. they get a lot of big names linked. And I remember telling some of the lads, like, you should play against Ipswich. Yeah. And don't be worried that this guy's coming in. This is going to be good. Uh, so he comes in and it's like the pre-season was all with, a, all with a ball a bit of running and a bit of checking characters and stuff like that uh, but playing like you said ways to play ways to build ways to get at teams uh, just in general his his enthusiasm rubbed, rubbed off I don't want to say on the team it rubbed off on the club yeah and yeah, and uh, Gary ended up. Were you working on that every day in training? Because that doesn't just come on a Saturday, does it? You need, you need to work on specifics to make that happen. Yeah, you had to first the first month or so, roughly on a pre-season. He he was building general things, I think, which were just the general principles of how you're going to play. Right. But then it was the week building and the game started becoming. We're playing against this on a Saturday. We need to do this, 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 and we'll beat them. Yeah. And no matter who we're playing against, this is how we're going to beat this team. I don't think he ever came in and said, we're going here on Saturday, away to this stadium. This is how we don't get beat. Not once. Yeah. We'd go there, he'd say, this is how we beat this team. When you lose it, he's aware of it, you've got to do this, but this is how we're going to go and beat a team. And the, the belief that gives young players is incredible. The the what would you say the the backing it gives myself as a senior ish player at that point it was Gary Smith, uh, Colin Murdoch at that time was kind of on his way out, but then Gary Caldwell was coming in young but leader, uh, man before his time if you like in a dressing room, which I knew him since we, we were together at Newcastle. Yeah. So first team player at Newcastle and young boys coming through becoming first team players. Uh, then getting to play with him again at Hibs and seeing his growth and knowing where he was going to go and I see him again it was unbelievable uh, I was I was delighted for him so but yeah. having him in my team I was even happier yeah. so it was great uh, but the, the the group of players needed that breath of fresh air and they responded and so did the club because the people started coming back and buying season tickets and the, the place started filling up again yeah, I mean, like, who wouldn't with some of the, you know, you think Gary Caldwell, Scott Brown, Kevin Thompson, a young Stephen Fletcher, Derek Reardon, Gary O'Connor. Like, you know, you're, we're talking about some of the, the best Scottish players of a generation, really. You know, some of yeah. the guys, what they went on to do. And, and, and Tony's, um, I guess, his... His quiet leadership, I, I, I'd say, and I don't like think that I know Tony Evan as, as well as you, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
he's a guy who is is very much about allowing people to figure it out themselves also and, uh, yeah. and giving them a platform to go and express themselves. Am I right in saying that? From, from my experience, yes, at Hibs, certainly. I know, I know at Celtic it ultimately didn't go great, but yeah. I can only speak about him at Celtic, uh, sorry, at Hibs from what I knew him. But the, you're, the word you use, you give, him, you give players a platform. He did. He, he showed you how you should play. He gave you the belief that you're better than this team or at least equal to this team. This is how you beat them. It's not, let's go there and take it on the chin and we might get out here with nil-nil. Nah, let's go and win. So he, he's, I'd almost say he was like pricking consciences all the time. It's like, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Do you want to be a pro? Are you going to be a real player? Are yeah. You, he's helping as an older, I was saying an older player, I was like 27. He knew I was one of the older boys in the group and I could play and I'd been around and I was kind of on side. So I was kind of pushing the lads as well at the same yeah. time. Not a captain in there. Uh, I can't even remember who the captain was at the time. It was probably Gary became the captain. Yeah. He went, they went younger. I think Tomo became the captain and things like that, which yeah. to, to be honest, I didn't agree with at the time, but I could see what Tony was doing. Uh, I think there'd be a lot of people in the same boat, but the managers manage and they live or die by it. And he, he's making good decisions at that time. So yeah. it's, uh, it's not always the oldest guy that's been there the longest as the captain. And it takes, to me, it takes a good professional to understand that as well. So I had a good relationship with him at the time. Um, uh, but he, he would, he would, and he, he pricked enough consciences, consciences in there that all those boys became top pros. Uh, yeah, add, add in Dave Murphy. Add in, I don't know if you mentioned Steve Whitaker, Guillaume yeah. Boozelin, who he signed for Peanuts and from France. I forget uh, about half these guys. I played with Murphy at Birmingham as well. He was a brilliant, consistent player. Murph, Whitaker, Boozelin. Like, these get, if I'm going to ask, a big question here, but if if Hibs had gave these guys some of the wages they deserved and they had managed to keep them together for two or three more years, do you think they could have won the? You guys could have won the Scottish Premier League. I might not go out a game, but <laughs> <laughs> now nah, you know you know someone else. Here's another name. Anyway, before we say this, answer your question. I'm not going to ignore it. <laughs> Gary Smith gets ignored as well. Yeah. So you you talk about the players that were at Hibs at that time, and it's it's always the young ones. And Gary Smith came in and was well, not came in. He was there and was unbelievable in that team. I did okay in the team. Gary Caldwell came in and doesn't get linked in that breath with those young players. And he was the leader of that young crew. Yeah. And uh, I think it's amazing at times what people don't see. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of that's by the by. So. I, I think managed right. I think it could have. Yes. Uh, the one reason it might not have is I don't think we were experienced enough. So if, if you kept right. it together, we might have got there. But I think there was too many. We took a lot of sore ones where yeah. we'd get beat off, and I can't even remember. Maybe a Kelly or a Levy at home. Yeah. Two, three, nothing. Things like that. We'd go to Rangers and win three, nothing. Yeah. And it's just like. It was almost like free and easy. It was yeah. like let's have a go and let's let's. But we're, it was pretty entertaining, and I think the manager's job was to get young players, get them in, get them out, fill the stadium. I think he did everything that he was meant to do. Yeah. Uh, so a few years of bit experience, a little addition here and there, maybe. Yeah, I, I, we wouldn't be far away. Right. 
and and so you had a few more years there, and then you had a spell at Dunfermline. Um, maybe you want to touch on, but I, you know, I want to think about when you moved across the United States of America and, and, and why Carolina and what was the influence there and was it just a fresh challenge or or did you feel like you wanted to take the next steps of your career in, in North America? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't so targeted as that in a way. Right. It was uh, I kinda need to touch on Dunfermline because of how it came about. So yeah. ended up ended up going on loan and things like that, uh, to Dunfermline. Stephen Kenny was the manager at the time. Uh, so ended up signing for him permanently. Jimmy McIntyre became the co- uh, the the manager when Stephen got sacked. So still a good friend of mine, Jimmy, to this day. So get on well with him. Which is he's probably the only manager that ever really told me I wasn't getting another contract. Which right. is mental. He's one of my best mates. But uh, <laughs> and I think he felt like, how do I do this? And I was like, I know where you're going. Don't worry, yeah. it's fine. So, but at Dunfermline, I played with Greg Shields. So Greg ended up going to America. Yeah. Played for another Scottish guy called Martin Rennie, who coaches now in D11. Yeah. Uh, became Vancouver manager from where I went. So that Dunfermline link up, it was easier for Martin to get to me through Greg. Yeah. Because I fancied coming to America. Uh, So I ended up, I I think there was a summer, the summer that I went out of contract, I'd been injured all year. I went and did pre, not pre-season, I went and did like a training month over in North Carolina. Okay. And uh, Martin said, come back in January and do a trial. But we knew the trial was, I was going to be 34 in January, like in May, but that January. Yeah. So he knew what he was getting. He was getting a senior player that had been around that maybe couldn't play quite as much, but mm-hmm. a bit of experience for his group. So that's how it ended up in North Carolina. So I, I wanted to continue playing. I was on trial at places like... I think I went I went to Hibs were brilliant. Yogi let me go in and day training. Colin Calderwood was great. Yeah. Uh and then I was on trial at St. Murren. Did quite well, but Danny Lennon didn't take me. Uh told me that injury thing. What the usual you don't want an old yeah. player, just tell him it's injuries. So that was that. Because yeah. I did quite well in pre season. But right. it's fair enough. I can understand it. I'm a coach now and I could see, but I would have done it a little bit more honestly. I was I can't bring in a thirty-four-year-old. That's yeah. that's the truth. And thirty-four-year-olds don't mind getting told that, rather than I can't bring in somebody of your age. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. uh, somebody that's somebody that's injury-prone or whatever. I just done pre-season. I did really well. But again, that's to me, it's not important because I think the right things ended up happening. That the North Carolina trial, go to North Carolina, not play so much under Martin. Uh, became as pretty much a sub got on now and again yeah which kind of suited me because my body started playing up that not playing up in terms of being injured but just really feeling tired training right. wise yeah. so day after training struggling to walk that sort of thing oh, and wow. what was it particularly your, your hip i think was it it was my calves at first right. I've, I've i'd had bad knees since my first year at newcastle because i got yeah. done over there uh but then from there did, did my knees three times each, <laughs> so I was kind of soldiering on anyway. Uh, in North Carolina, it was my calves were just tightening all the time. Every morning I was struggling to walk. Uh, and I think I was protecting that, and I think that's what hurt my hip in the end. Right. Of. So I'd done my hip, needed fixed, and I just thought, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing another rehab. I'm done. Yeah. So that ended up being that. But uh, there's a funny story at Martin and about man management and things as well, because Paul Ritchie was the assistant. Yeah. So it was... I'd got myself for a 34-year-old then turned 35 in the May. Yeah. 
I was in really good shape because I was in America. It was hot. I had to be. Yeah. So uh, Martin, I don't know if he still is or not. I still speak to him because we play against him. And I, I yeah. speak to him quite a bit. But uh, he was big on the gym at that time. I think he probably still is, the fitness side of things. I was doing my own gym program. I couldn't lift the weights. So you've been to Toronto, so you know the weights that the lads are lifting. Yeah. They're, they're pretty much going for it. You could probably handle it. I could. <laughs> so... They're doing these crazy weights and stuff. And I remember one of the first weeks, we did weights on like a Tuesday. On the Saturday in the game, I could still feel my body sore for the Tuesday. So like the next week, I said, I can't, I can't do this. I yeah. have to, I've been doing my own program. I'm like, I'm in all right condition here. I'm, I'm looking after myself. I'll come to the gym. Yeah. And he's like, we want you to do the program. So I went and kind of go half-hearted half through it, yeah. whatever because it'll help me for a Saturday, not because I'm a bad pro. Yeah. And he's kind of noticing it. And then the next week I say, I'm like, I can't, I can't do that. If you want me to play, I can't do this program. And he's like, right. Okay. Come and speak to the guy that runs it. He's brilliant. He's Olympic and all this stuff. And he's, <laughs> we speak to him outside and we come back in. And like, he's great. And he has, he's really good. He's really good. I can't do it though. <laughs> <laughs> so I go back in and I do my own program. Yeah. And then Rich comes to me during the week later on and says, yeah. listen, if you, if you don't do the weights program, Martin's not going to play you. I said, well, Martin's not going to play me. <laughs> because if I do the program, I can't play anyway. Why was he so focused on the weights program? I, I think because at that t- he was a really young manager at that right. time. But not, not the weights program, about everyone doing the same yeah, stuff. Yeah, right. So he felt like if I was given a free pass, he's seen it as, I think, that it's almost like it's free reign for the rest of the group. Right. But I, w- I would have went in at the same time and did my specific program. Yeah. yeah. That got me fit, that made me able to go there. Uh, but you talk about man management and stuff. Um, and I never bore grudges with any of the managers that I played for. So I'd speak to them, I'd tell them, like, I can't do it. And if you're not playing me because of this, that's up to you. But I can't do it. So ended up... Ended up being all right, and I was just a sub now and again, barely played, got injured. But we've still got a good relationship, so it's fine. But you learn about man management as well. So it's been a little bit from every coach as well, to be fair. Well, you know, and I know you started coaching in Carolina and you coach different age groups, but I think it's a perfect time to, to, you know, almost go back and think about Alex Smith and Alec Miller and Tommy Craig and Bobby Robson, Kenny Dugleish. Rude Hullet, Gianluca Vialli, Ray Lewington, Tony Mowbray, you know, go on and on. The influences that you've had in your career, the, the, the different experiences, the different ways of doing things, the different cultures, nationalities. You're now the head coach at Atlanta United 2. Like, what an experience that is. And with your hard work ethic and your, um, your humbleness, to be honest, and your, your willingness to listen and learn at all times, I think has set you up absolutely brilliantly at the early stages of your coaching career to be, yeah, to hopefully become exceptional. Glassy, like talk to us about that. You know, like it's picking up that little bit from everybody, isn't it? And trying to mash it all together in your personality and and, and the way that you want it to look and, yeah. and take that forward, isn't it? Yeah. I'd- I'm kind of weird, you know what I'm like, I'm kind of wary of talking about this because it sounds like I'm saying I'm a good coach. So yeah, I, I'm no. not saying, I'm saying I think this will set me up for something later, if you like. Yep. But I, I think you're right, you take a bit from all the top guys and things and places you've been. But one of the things 
that's been I think has been unbelievable for me and my development as a coach is coaching lower levels. So when right. I was playing at North Carolina, I coached two teams. So the amount of hours you're doing on a on a night, you're coaching probably Monday to Thursday, and then you've either got like two or four games on a weekend. So you're coaching a lot. Yeah. Then from from there, I went back to I went back to nothing actually, and then I went to Ireland as an assistant to Stephen Kenny yeah. at Shamrock Rovers. Yeah. Uh, so working there, coaching there quite a lot. Then. Uh, Stephen Stephen left and I took over for a spell so you're coaching and in charge of a team yep I wasn't enjoying my life in Ireland right so I I thought I'm going to go back to North Carolina to the youth club that I was working for yeah the pro stuff in Ireland I was I was ready to jump off the building I was living and it was that right it's horrible I was hating it yeah Yeah. Uh, so ended up speaking to people in North Carolina saying I wouldn't mind coming back you know to coach the, the kids yeah. And I'm saying kids, I, I wanted to do the oldest set, but yeah. to get to get in and get enough teams, I had to go like 15s to 18s. And at first I had two boys teams. Right. The, the, the next year, the, so I'm at every night, you know how many games are the youth stuff because your kids do it. So unbelievable amount of games, unbelievable amount of training. Uh, then the next year, the guy that coached, that developed, sorry, what was the word? Like he's the director of the girls' side. Yes. He had a really good girls team. And he says to me, I want you to coach on the girls' side as well. Right. And I was like, ah, I don't know about this. <laughs> I thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. I went to watch them, actually. I went to watch yeah. them in New York in a, in a tournament. He says, come up with me and watch the, these up in New York. So I'm watching them. i seen them warming up. The habits again. They were yeah. unbelievable. Right. So he, he says to me, what do you think? I says, why have they not won the State Cup yet? <laughs> he goes, brilliant. I want you to coach them. Yeah. So ended up taking two boys teams, two girls teams that year. So I've right. now got four teams <laughs> looking after four teams, coaching them all yeah. year. Unbelievable amount of hours again, coaching, managing parents, yeah. managing players. Uh, the next year, knock two teams off, go back to two and direct the, the girls yeah. side. Right. 17 teams. Oh, so I've co- uh, coaching two of them, coaching, helping two boys teams, and looking after 17, so dealing with 17 managers, 17 groups of players, parents that come to you for information, all of that stuff has been like set me up, I think, to be able to think I can handle managing, coaching a team. Yeah. Because you go back, I moved a wee bit in North Carolina after that because there was another program in Charlotte. Uh-huh. I was in Raleigh first, then I went to Charlotte where there was uh, an ECNL program, which was a step up at that time for me. So I thought, I'm going to do this as well. I got two teams. I was coaching under a, a regime, let's say, that told you this is how you coach. Again, so I wasn't enjoying it. Right. And I thought, I'd done loads of hours, loads of coaching. I thought I knew kind of what worked. I knew how to drive people. I was a decent manager of people, I think, as well as a coach. Uh, loving what I was doing. And I went somewhere else for something different because there was a merger happened and I didn't, I wasn't really part of it. So I thought I'm going to go a uh, good opportunity. But then I got there and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Right. Uh, some, some good people in there, but the, the, the whole picture wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So I started thinking one, one year I was like, I'm either going home to find something or I'm going to start seeing, I'm going to have a go at the pro stuff here, you know, with the yeah. pro coaching. So I spoke to a couple of people, uh, the Scottish Network again. I ended up speaking to Tommy Wilson. Yeah. Um, 
Tommy and, Wilson at, at Philadelphia Union. Philadelphia Academy. Union, sorry. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of Tommy, and Tommy put me in touch with Tony Annan. Uh, so I can't even remember how it came about. But yeah. Tommy, Tony speaking, whatever. Came, drove the four hours to Charlotte from Charlotte down to Atlanta, do a coaching session, spend the whole day with the staff. And I think Tony was kind of sounding me out with the staff and things like that as well. Yeah. But, uh, because it's very tight knit. They only hire a certain type of person at Atlanta as well. So I think you were, and I didn't know that at the time, and I'm glad I didn't because you you go yeah, in and you try, try and be, be that guy instead of being yourself. Yeah, I think you just go be yourself, and it is what yeah. it is. If you're if you're right for the place, you're right. Uh, and I landed, I landed at the fortune again. I landed with the right person at the right time because I think in the right club. I think there's a lot of people wouldn't want a former pro with a pro license coming into their academy. Yeah. And Tony Annan opened the door for me to come in to the to the Atlanta United Academy. Uh, so loving my time there, I was coaching the 17s uh, for close to a year, I think a year or so. And the, the USL coach left. So the job's open. I said, Tony, listen, I came for the academy, but I think I could do this, you know. Yeah. My name gets put forward after apply for the job, and then before you know it, you're the, the coach of the second team. Uh, but those influences of the youth side are, to me, as important as as the the Viale, the Relu, yeah. whoever, all of them. Well, They've all got a bit in there, but equally important was the youth stuff. Well, that gives you the the kind of experience and maybe the examples, but. The next question I want to ask is, is there any substitute in coaching to basically the hours that you spend on the pitch? You've got to go through it. It doesn't matter if you've played for the best team in the world or you've won World Cups. You need to learn your trade on the grass, don't you? It's completely different from being a player and it's all about getting in the experiences, putting on sessions and seeing how players, in, in your experience, different genders, different ages different qualities, I guess, how they adapt and react and, uh, and and go along with your sessions. There's no substitute to that, is there? No, there's not. I, I don't think so. And I think actually having it be your team and there's 16, 18 sets of eyes sitting looking at you like, what you got for us? Yeah. It doesn't matter who they are. <laughs> I think when you go for your coaching licenses, you're scared to coach the, the group you've got for 15 minutes. Yeah. And now you're in charge of this group and then you take them away for a weekend and they're all like, right, what's the rules? When? What's, <laughs> how do we play? What's this? What's that? Yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. The, the amount of time that you have to, in my opinion, that you have to put in is, is massive. Uh, and, and hands-on coaching, I think, in a way, I was fortunate that I didn't get an opportunity early that was too big in effect. Yeah. Because I think that can stunt your coaching as well because unless you've got your hands on stuff you can develop it you can you can still do it and you might be better as a starting point than I was but I think having your hands on something and seeing it change it makes you start believing that works that works that doesn't work and you've got actually concrete evidence and belief and it's easier to make players believe that you know what you're talking about if they're they're buying into it and they could see that you actually know you believe that this is going to work. It's easier to make them believe in it as well. Yeah. Uh, but I think yeah, so so that time on the grass for me is hugely important. It really is. Uh and probably no substitute, 
it's you can land you can land on your feet, but you could also land in an unbelievable position and not be ready for it, and it could be yeah. the last shot. And that's it's something I think young coaches need to be wary of. So th- really, thanks for your time, Stephen. It's been absolutely brilliant. And just you know, a couple of little things I want to ask you before I let you go here is, you know, you're now coach of a a reserve team as such, and the difficulties of that are that you are at the mercy of your your head coach Frank De Boer, who's who's a brilliant coach and who's someone who has a, a strong philosophy in the game. Does he allow you to, you know, go with the tactics that you choose and, and play in the style that you want? Or are you a little bit hand-tied about the players that you can select and the kind of style that you can play? And my second sort of follow-up to that is, is your job then, right back to the start when we are talking about Aberdeen, is your job as a head coach of Atlanta United 2 to basically instill the standards and the um, the the way of playing, the knowledge in terms of what it takes to be a true professional with your young lads in the reserve team? Yeah, I think you'll answer the second one first. It's probably the easiest way. Uh, yeah. I think we feel like our job here is if we get one of these guys into the first team or help get them up there, that they're as best prepared as they can be. Uh, we would hate to go to the stadium and see them play a first-team game and they fail and it's through something that we should have said to them or done yeah. or pushed them a bit harder or put a bigger demand on them. So in terms of how hard we push them, we, we maybe we overcook it a little bit. We put the demands really high on them. Uh, but I think it prepares them best to handle playing in front of a demanding Atlanta United crowd or yeah. being able to handle being an Atlanta United player home or away. Uh, so that's probably the demands that get put on them and what we expect. Uh, in terms of the tactical side of things, it's really the the ethos and the principle of the club, how they're going to play. So I, I won't divulge of all the details. You you know from watching games how Atlanta United play. You know what yeah. we look for. You know the expectations. But uh, it's not for me to go yeah. shouting them out. But I, I think that that's passed down. That's the club's principles. So... Regardless of who the first team coach are, the expectation is the first team are going to do certain things. The expectation is that we can replicate those things and push the players to be able to do them at a higher level, so in the first team. Just like we do with the academy players. They've already got a grounding. They come at us. We push them a little bit harder than the academy does, see if they can handle it, see if they're ready for the next hop as well. And uh, well, everybody that comes and works for this club knows the principles of the club when you come. So it's yeah. if, if they don't fit you, you don't take part. Yeah. Uh, and I think the people that they hire agree with it anyway. So it's right. not something you need to change people when they come. I don't think they're going to hire their own people to uh, instill the values, keep the values going, and ensure that, that the almost the brand, I suppose, of Atlanta United is well looked after and, yeah. uh, and continues to thrive the way it has done. Yeah, thanks um, for that answer, Glassy. It's actually fascinating that, you know, the, the philosophy of the club is, is first and foremost the most important thing, as it should be when you're trying to build a brand. And again, thanks for your time. Some amazing insights into there, working with some of the best managers within the game through your playing career and now at the start of your, in my opinion, it's going to be a very, very successful coaching career. So I wish you all the best, mate. Appreciate your time and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Stevie. Cheers, man. Good to see you.